All right, let's do it. Let's talk about gentamicin for an hour. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James. That's Callum. And we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the seer piece done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm good. I uh, slipped and I got some jam on me earlier on. It's got a lot of sugar in it, I guess, glycose. And not being able to get it off, so I'm a minute of a glyco side. I'm a casein for a better pun. So uh, I was worried that your uh, cousin Amy had uh, hidden all your sweets uh, from you in the in the cupboard because I know you told her earlier, Amy, no glycose hide. I have a bone to pick with you because at the beginning, before the intro, you said we were going to talk about gentamicin for an hour. And there's three things about that. One is, is this really going to be an hour? Because this could be like three hours, I think. <laughs> Find out. I guess you know, listeners, because it says on the podcast. Two, not just gentamicin. Come on. Uh, we have to we have to give some love to the, the other minoglycosides. Yeah, I guess we do. And three, you spoiled all the puns because people already knew what we were talking about. Because mm. whatever those were, I'm not going to say puns. They weren't. I mean, you're not going to keep all of them in, are you? Are we? I don't know. Listeners, you don't know what we cut, so whoever made the cut, that was the good ones. Yeah, I know. That's the problem well, here. I don't know. Like, I don't know how long this is going to be. So, I, I mean, this is a, a companion piece. I'm sure most people by now will have listened to the episode of uh, Febrile, which Sarah very kindly, but also completely inexplicably invited us onto as what I'm pretty sure is two of the least qualified guests she's ever had on the podcast. But nonetheless, <laughs> we were invited on to episode 51, which was released on the 22nd of August, where we talked about basically how aminoglycosides were used in, in Scotland and how to use them kind of correctly if you're going to be using them as part of your kind of empirical antibiotics therapy sort of guide. But, you know, as, as part of that, I was then asked to kind of teach the, the local registrar, registrars at Nador South on uh, a topic of my choice. And obviously I chose aminoglycosides and that's kind of what this episode is, is about. So Nadosh Royal Infirmary South Registrars, if you are listening, you have already heard all of this. You do not need to listen to this episode of the podcast. In, in fairness, nobody needs to listen to any episode of the podcast. Well, don't tell people that because we'll have, we'll have them switching off in droves. Uh, so, Callum, what are we going to talk about uh, today? Yeah, so we're going to go through some definitions in the classification, give some examples of those, talk about the mechanism of action or mechanisms, uh, the resistance mechanisms, the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamic, and then the differences between aminoglycosides. Callum, what was the first aminoglycoside? Top of my head, I'm going to say streptomycin. What year was it discovered? Why am I doing this voice? What year was it discovered? Uh, your dad voice is coming onto the podcast. James' <laughs> next podcast is Antibiotic Bedtime Stories. Well, I don't think I knew this off the top of my head, but I'm going to say 1944. Yeah, about 1944, 45. Yeah, it was, it was um, discovered in an American lab in New Jersey. I forget where exactly. It's on the Wikipedia page. But what they were looking for antibiotics specifically for TB. 
and they found a couple. They found neomycin and they found streptomycin. Streptomycin is, you know, to this day in some parts of the world used as an anti-tuberculous uh, drug. But kind of others from, from that, others kind of soon followed. And then we got sort of first canamycin and then gentamicin, tobra, amicacin. And the most recent one that was uh, discovered was plasmycin, which I think was discovered in like 1998 or something like that. And it got a license from the FDA in 2018. How do we classify them? So there's three groups that you can put them into. There's a streptomycin group, streptomycin, neomycin group, neomycin, paromomycin. Paromomycin. Which isn't used for systemic therapy. Well, well, neither of them are really because, you know, neomycin, I think I'm pretty sure it's just topically used. Yeah. 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 And then paromomycin is used for gut clearance of cysts things like Giardia. Yeah. So it's got eukaryotic cover, and so it can be used for intraluminal clearance of stuff like that. But we'll come on to it. I've got a slide in that later. And then the last group is the canamycin group, and that's got canamycin, gentamicin, tobramycin, cysomycin, nettlemycin. Cysomycin. I don't know what they are. I've never heard of them. I heard of nettlemycin, actually. Yeah, I think nettlemycin and um, and streptomycin are sort of commonly used in other parts of the world, like Eastern Europe and, and stuff like that. Okay. But the canamycin group forms the core group of, of what we use uh, these days. So, and in particular, I'll point out the three things that are certainly in commonest use in the UK and the US as well, I think, are gentamicin, tobramycin, and amicacin, which are all in the canamycin group. Yeah, uh, so gentamicin and canamicin are actually kind of mixtures of three different chemicals. So gentamicin C1, C1A, and C2 is all sort of collectively uh, sort of gentamicin. Hmm. So a little bit about the uh, structure now. So just to point out that aminoglycosides are composed of an amine bit and a sugar or glycoside bit. So they're a combination of of amine groups around a, a central sugar structure. The, this gives them certain properties, like they're quite polarized. And so that's interesting in that they will tend not to penetrate through uh, into certain tissues, like their penetrance into you know, the lung is reduced because they, they don't get through the basement membrane so much. And the same is true of the blood-brain barrier. But we'll talk about uh, penetrance a little further on. Um, but just to say that the chemical structure does sort of affect where it goes and what it does. Mm. It also makes them susceptible to enzymatic modification, which is an important resistance mechanism that we'll uh, talk about shortly. Um, so, Calm, I think most of the audience will have used them in the context of gram-negative sepsis, and they will know that some of them, like mostly amicacin and streptomycin, are useful for TB. Are there any other sort of use cases for, for any aminoglycosides in particular, like starting with, say, streptomycin? Yeah, so streptomycin, historically TB, I think places have moved away from that with the, with the newer anti-tuberculous antibiotics um, that are now available because of the toxicity concern. Rarely you can use it for Yersinia pestis. I think, we did we mention that in our Yersinia episode? Yeah, we did. I mean, it's all of these kind of older, sort of less well-studied, infectious diseases a lot of them are for gram negative have gentamicin as a treatment option just because yep. it's so toxic to the to the yep. organism presumably um brucella uh, tularemia and bartonella mm-hmm. 
it'd be interesting to go back and compare, you know, because obviously that's very historical data that you're you're using that, and I don't think there's real what one the case numbers in these sort of neglected tropical diseases to to go in and study them in that much detail. So how would you ever know what's better? You know, I imagine some of our newer antibiotics maybe are maybe are better and less toxic. Who knows? Okay. And then coming down our list, we've got amikacin, which I see is I've, I've put as a treatment option for nocardia, although obviously not CNS nocardia. Tobra, you can realize for cystic fibrosis patients. Mm. Um, yeah. You just see that done. And then uh, plasomycin, the use case for that is mainly, well, exclusively really with multidrug resistant organisms and gram negative sepsis. And if you want to find out about yeah. that, you can go to our episodes on the multidrug resistant treatment guidelines and plasomycin does feature in now which one is it in is it, is it in both of them i can't remember i think it's merging mdr one or one or the other i mean why not listen to them both loyal listener if you haven't already i feel like i should go listen to them because like, <laughs> <laughs> i've forgotten what it is oh well the tragedy of plasomycin is coming up uh, shortly cal oh you should write that play and um, paromomycin paromomycin yeah so like oh, the- param- paromomycin yeah. So the the I mean its mechanism of action is the same, except that it's binding eukaryotic ribosomes instead of prokaryotic ribosomes. So that can help you treat certain intraluminal pathogens that are eukaryotic, such as Giardia and amoebiasis and cryptosporidium, stuff like that. Let's talk about its mechanism of action now. Like how is it how's it working? I think most people know that it acts on protein synthesis. When I'm you know, thinking about what acts on protein synthesis, I'm, I'm usually trying to divide it into sort of works, what works on the 30S and what works on the 50S um, ribosomal subunit. And there's different binding sites for each. And very roughly, 30S is the target for aminoglycosides and tetracyclines, so doxycycline. And then 50S is the target for everything else. That's the way that I remember it. And, and the aminoglycosides bind at slightly different sites, and they some of them bind more strongly than others, like streptomycin binds quite weakly and can be easily displaced, which again is important for resistance. But uh, some bind much more strongly, and they're all binding sort of to the 30S uh, component. In terms of the me- that mechanism of action, that like, like quite a lot of other protein synthesis inhibition uh, drugs, that is bacteriostatic. The sort of main difference is that gentamicin binds irreversibly. So if the cell wants to, you know, synthesize more protein, it sort of has to either wait for the gentamicin to dissociate, which will tend not to happen, or it has to synthesize more mRNA, uh, ribosomal RNA de novo. But it's got a second mechanism of action, which is less well known, but is profoundly bactericidal, which is depolarization of the cell membrane. So a little bit on how bacteria work. So unlike eukaryotic cells, which have lots of intracellular organelles and Golgi bodies and endoplasmic reticulum and all that sort of stuff that they can sort of stick enzymes into, bacteria don't really have that. They're very simple on the inside. They've got a bacterial chromosome. They've got cytoplasm, which is stuffed full of ribosomal RNA. And then they've got the cell membrane and the cell wall. And so if they have enzymes that they want to have in a specific place, they tend to shove them on the inside of the cell membrane. And so then the polarity of that cell membrane matters. 
And if you change the polarity, like with a cationic drug, which is what aminoglycosides are, then it will bind ionic cell membrane components and reduce the membrane integrity. And that will lead to lysis of the cell and those enzymes will stop working. And so that's the sort of second mechanism of action. Of course, to do both of these things, the gentamicin has to get into the cell first, which provides an opportunity for the bacteria to become resistant. So let's do a quick comparison of like the different spectrums uh, between the aminoglycosides now. Uh, yes. Gentamicin, let's start with that because that's where we're, where we're usually at. So gentamicin covers most staph, not staphylococcus saprophyticus. So that's the UTI causing staph. Yeah, that's, it's, it's sort of anaerobic and uh, uh, replicates anaerobically and aminoglycosides are really only for aerobic uh, uh, cells. Um, it may have some cover against uh, streptococci, but don't trust it. And the reason for that is that it, streptococci lack the, the uptake mechanism that the other organisms have to get into mycin into the cell. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So they, I remember that um, from a previous episode. <laughs> electron transport proteins. Yeah, so the, that's how the gentamicin is getting into the cell. Well, streptococci as a group just don't have them. In fact, the I think in vitro, if you give it in high enough amounts, you might get some anti-streptococcal activity, but you won't get it in, in vivo. I don't think you'll get near those levels particularly. Okay. I just wouldn't trust it for any streptococci at all. Yeah. Uh, it's got a decent gram-negative cover, obviously, unless there's resistance. It has a pseudomonas cover, and it's got no tuberculosis cover. So um, how is tobramycin different then? Tobramycin, well, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, it's got more pseudomonas cover than gentamicin. And otherwise, it's the same. So gram-negative staph uh, cover, no TB cover. Yeah. And amicacin? Amicacin it's the same as gent, but also covers TB. And then streptomycin isn't the same as gent. It doesn't cover pseudomonas, but it does cover TB. Yeah. So if you're, if you're wanting to cover TB, you have to use amicacin or streptomycin. And to be honest, most people these days would default to using amicacin if they had to, because as you say, there's loads of other TB treatments that are available now that frankly I've fallen behind on. If you're wanting to cover pseudomonas, you could use gentober or amic. And if you wanted to cover gram negs or staph, you could use you could use all of them. Hmm. And I guess it's worth mentioning here that it, there's a, a range of other sort of niche organisms. So we're saying gram negative. So we're really talking about intrabacterales there. When we're looking at other organisms, they cover so things like Listeria, Campylobacter, Bartonella, Francisella, or uh, Tularemia, and uh, Brucella yersinia. So these sort of more. Uh, unusual organisms that you might come across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the mechanism of action and, and what they're covering. Let's talk now about sort of how you might get run into trouble um, with uh, using gentamicin. So some stuff will be intrinsically resistant to gent, like streptococci, uh, for example. A an important thing to say is that for most of these resistance mechanisms, they're sort of per drug. There's not a lot of them where you could say if you've got that resistance mechanism, all of the aminoglycosides are out. So usually you have to test all of them individually. Um, so unlike, say, with the beta lactams, that if you you know if you get cephalosporin resistance, you maybe don't trust any of the third generation cephalosporins if it's ceftriaxone or 
any of the first gens if if you've got resistance to kefazolin. With the aminoglycosides, usually you you keep gent, tobra, and amikacin on your testing panel. And that's true in NADOS North, where we use the Vitec 2. Um, and it's also true in NADOS South, where we're using the Phoenix um, for our antimicrobial susceptibility testing. The one thing I'll point out here is that it's pretty easy for streptomycin resistance to develop, which kind of limits its use compared to the other aminoglycosides. It's got, as I previously mentioned, fairly kind of weak binding to its target site. And the modification of one amino acid can confer resistance, total resistance to streptomycin. And that's seen in uh, E. coli, it's seen in Pseudomonas, and it's seen in TB, which are the three big groups that you want to use aminoglycosides for, you know, mm. intrabacteriales, non-fermentative organisms, and tuberculosis. Canamycin uh, and derivatives thereof, so that's Gentamic and Tobra, tend to have multiple binding sites, and that, that means that they're, they've got a much higher barrier to resistance. And the aminoglycosides in general have a really high barrier to resistance, which is uh, good if you're going to be using it as your gram-negative backbone in empirical antibiotic regimens. Hmm, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, because you won't see the development of resistance over time. But you know, what, what are those mechanisms? Well, the, the kind of number one that I think you need to know about as a microbiologist, and I think that this is worth learning for the exam, is AIMS or aminoglycoside modifying enzymes. And these are kind of plasmid browned genes, which can also be on transposons or jumping genes. They can transmit fairly rapidly between antibacterials. There's more than 30 of them. For Christ's sake, don't try and memorize any of them. Oh, no, I've already but, done that. <laughs> um, but what they do exactly what they, they say in the tin. They uh, enzymatically catalyze the aminoglycosides. They change the structure by you know, stripping off a, a nitrate group here, a glucose bit there. So what are they, they, how are they modifying the aminoglycoside? Well, they're divided into three groups. One is acetyltransferases, and they transfer acetyl groups uh, onto the aminoglycoside, and that modifies its structure and makes it less likely to bind. Nucleodetyltransferases are trans transferring a nucleoside onto them, and phosphotransferases are adding a phosphate group. And all of this changes the structure of the target, but the enzymes have sort of different targets. So I'll give you an example. Uh, AAC3-I has a substrate of gentamicin, but it doesn't affect any of the others. Whereas AEC6-2 targets gentamicin and tobramycin and netelmycin, but not amicacin. And they're kind of all like that. There are some that are fairly widespread. So like, you know, ANT4, which is one of the nucleotidyl transferases, acts on tobramycin, amicacin, canamycin, and neomycin but not gentamicin. So like they can be fairly widespread and some of them will work on all three and some of them are in gram negatives only and some of them are in gram positives only. Most of them are in gram negatives, particularly the acetyltransferases. But the important thing is that you, the way that you test for this is that you test all the drugs individually and just see what comes up as, as resistant. You can't really infer out to the whole class mm. from resistance just to the one. And and this gives, when you have one of these modifying enzymes, the drug doesn't bind to the ribosome and you get high level resistance. And is it worth just quickly mentioning what the difference, because there's high level resistance in amino glycosides and then there's just, what do we, what do we call it, low level resistance or just 
Yeah, so they, they tend to be the, the other resistance mechanisms. So if you've got, like, say, an efflux pump, how resistant you are depends on how much of the drug you can pump out. And that sort of relates to how much of the how many efflux pump the you know the bug has and how many it can sort of uh, put into its membrane you know at the time whether or not it's gram positive gram negative there are particular efflux pumps which are particularly common none of which I've memorized but mm. for record for enterobacterialis ACRD is quite important whereas for Pseudomonas is the RND superfamily and for Acinetobacterus aid I mean that is way more than I have memorized. And I don't know, Calum, you're doing your part too soon. Have you memorized all the efflux pumps yet? Uh, it's not soon enough. <laughs> I'll have to ask um, one of the other guys who's just sat it yesterday. Don't ask them anything. I think their minds are just... Uh, actually, he's, he said that he's a bit frazzled, to be honest, but I'd, yeah, love, to, so I'd love to know what actually came up in the exam. Because me and Calum have both done the part one, loyal listener, but neither of us have done the part two. I've got the full intent of avoiding it if I possibly can, but Callum, you can't. You have to. You have to do it with me, because um, then you can help me revise. Wasn't well, this kind of what the podcast is? It's kind of half helping Callum revise and half doing a podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, well, yeah. As I think, as I get closer to that exam, we might become more and more focused on part two stuff. But at the moment, we're just focusing on getting through all the stuff that might come up in part one, which um, I know well, that some of the loyal listeners fun. have been, been hounded uh, by by one listener in particular to get on a move on, uh, as she put it, to, to record enough stuff for her exam. And I think we've probably run out of time to, to get through the whole of part one curriculum. So sorry about that. Sorry, Robin. <laughs> uh, our first ever shout out. Um, okay. And then in terms of other sort of resistance mechanisms, there's sort of impaired transport. So, I mean, obviously there's intrinsic impairment of transport. So anaerobes and streptococci don't have the requisite electron transport proteins, which would allow aminoglycides to enter into the cell. The way that aminoglycides work, don't ask me how, but it's an aerobic process. They don't work in an anaerobic environment, which means that they're crap for anaerobes and they're crap in abscesses, which are predominantly an anaerobic environment. And then you can sort of downregulate porins uh, on the surface of the cell, particularly gram negatives, because they need to go in through porins in order to get to the to the intermembrane space between the the, uh, mm. the bilayer that gram negative cell walls have. Okay, right. Let's talk pharmacokinetics. Okay, so we can break this down into absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. So basically, the the travel of the drug through the body, pharmacodrug kinetics movement. So absorption. So um, aminoglycosides are not bioavailable. If you swallow them, you're not, they're not going to get into the bloodstream. They don't cut across the gut, which is why we use paramomycin enterically, because it's not you know, going to get systemic absorption. It stays where you put it. And again, that comes back to this polarized uh, molecule that we've got. And it also applies for things like topical therapies. Yeah. In many ways, it's a good thing because like if you put it topically, you know, it's not really going to be absorbed and it's going to, you know, if you use in the ear, it'll stay in the ear. If you use in the eye, it'll stay in the eye, that kind of thing. Distribution. So it, because it's polarized, it doesn't cross the cell membrane or blood brain barrier very well, apart from in neonates. Um, so we might use benzalpenicillin and gentamicin, say, as a empirical therapy in neonates um, if you're worried about meningitis because you know what it crosses and E. coli might be a cause there. Yeah. 
And it does cross more an inflamed meninges, but okay. the penetrance in an uninflamed meninges is particularly poor. Yep. And uh, it's non-protein bound. Uh, so that means it doesn't stick in the blood. It refuses into the extracellular fluid. And the volume of distribution is pretty much a total body volume. So it's not sequestered uh, anywhere in particular. And it's not protein bound. So some some molecules are, you know, particularly sequestered into fat. Or um, if they're highly protein bound, then they tend to stay within the bloodstream. With drugs, things aren't good or bad. It's just what it is. And if you have knowledge of that, then it helps you to use it most mm. effectively. Metabolism, there's not really any significant metabolism. It, it is generally yeah, yeah. excreted unchanged in the urine um, and pretty much only in the urine. Uh, greater than 99% of it goes out that route, which again, it's great for UTIs. And it's got good penetration of renal tissue as well. So not only is it good for urinary tract, but also if there's a renal parenchymal infection like nephritis or something, then you can um, rely on it in that situation. Yeah, yeah, it's concentrated quite a lot in, in urine as we'll come on to. So taking the pharmacodynamics now, I, I'm planning on having a separate episode at one point about how antibiotics work and how you should think about dosing uh, antimicrobials in general. But the pharmacodynamic effect that we're looking for is Cmax or the maximal concentration in, uh, in the tissue of, of concern. And usually that's expressed as a sort of as, as a multiple of the MIC. So People probably who are just starting an infectious disease or microbiology, people have heard about time over MIC as the determinant of bacterial kill in beta-lactams, which are the most commonly used antibiotic. But that is kind of related to their mechanism of action. So they're they're inhibiting the you know synthesis of, of new cell wall by inhibiting peptidoglycan cross-linking you kind of get fairly maximal kill once you're 1.5 to 2 times over the MIC. So you could go up to 10 times over the MIC and you don't get any additional benefit from that um, by increasing the concentration. It'll just you know, act exactly the same as if you'd only gone 1.5 to 2 times. So all the dosing is related to making sure that you stay over the MIC for, you know, usually it's about 40% of the time. For severe infections, it might be up to 60 or 70%. Which is, I guess, why like there's this move towards continuous infusion, like on ICUs and stuff. Yes, and why UCAS are recommending for high-dose meropenem to give 2 grams over 3 hours Aminoglycosides and other things like dabtamycin, which are also dosed once a day, don't work like that. The more concentration you get, the more kill you get. And that's because the more drug is going to be entering in through the cell wall into the cell membrane and disrupting it and binding more ribosomes and stopping them from working. So you can get the, the higher concentration you get, the more likely the bug is to get killed. And so that means that usually when we're trying to dose aminoglycosides, we're kind of aiming for a Cmax of maybe eight to 10 times MIC. It sort of varies depending on who you, um, who you ask. But this kind of means that once a day dosing would probably be the best you know, way to dose. So we used to dose anti-aminoglycosides two to three times a day at, at these really titchy doses. That that use of titchy was for Sarah, by the way. And that means that we didn't really get a very high Cmax, whereas we then started dosing once a day 
of a big dose, like five to seven milligrams per kilogram. And then we started getting proper bacterial kill. The other good thing about aminoglycosides is they've got what's called a post-antibiotic effect. So other drugs have this, like beta-lactams have this. Even after the concentration of the drug goes underneath the MIC, you still don't get growth of the bug. And probably that's related in the case of aminoglycosides to the uh, drug still being bound at low levels to, to the ribosome. And they're only going to dissociate when the kind of PK dynamics make it make that likely. And the bugs need to have a bit of time to kind of synthesize new ribosomes and all that kind of stuff. So they've got this period where they're kind of stunned and growth doesn't really start until quite a long time after the um, uh, drug concentration has gone underneath the MIC. Hmm. Uh, and that happens in both gram-positive and gram-negative infections, so it's like staph and gram-negatives as well, whereas with beta-lactams, that tends to only happen with the gram-positives. And no, I don't know why. So let's talk about penetrance, Callum. So I think this is a concern that lots of people have with aminoglycosides and, and with glycopeptides as well, you know, vancin and, and ticoplanin and the aminoglycosides is that like what I was certainly always taught was that it stays where you put it. And that, that you know, it's for different reasons with with. Uh, glycopeptides is because the molecules are huge and so they find it difficult to cross mm-hmm. um, barriers. With the aminoglycosides, it's because they're charged and they've got a polarity and that makes it difficult to cross barriers. They don't get in cells all that much. But we do have uh, a slide here. And just incidentally, loyal listener, the, these slides are going to be made available to you. So if you want to download them and have a look at all these references, you can do. Um, but sort of seeing the kind of rough penetrance as a percentage of the, of the plasma concentration in certain uh, tissues. So the, the worst by far is CSF and, and brain, where you get about a 20% uh, penetrance into tissue. It's slightly better if the meninges are inflamed, but you know overall it's pretty, pretty bad. And whenever I see aminoglycides being used in the context of um, CNS infection, I always think, what is that doing? You know, really, we had a case in Nidor South of somebody who had listeria meningitis, and they were on amoxicillin and gentamicin, 1.667 milligrams per kilogram three times a day. So that's the old way that you would dose a total of five mg per kg body weight per day, but in three divided doses. And you know, I think I think the justification was synergy with the amoxicillin, but I, I you know, I thought to myself, of that one point six six you know milligrams per kilogram, only a fifth of that is actually getting in to the through the blood brain barrier, and so I I just didn't really think that that was doing all that much. We prescribed it because that was what was recommended in I think the Johns Hopkins manual for for dealing with listeria. But I know that there have been other studies where they, they essentially just said that this is not of any benefit. And in the BIA 2016 guidance for management of menin- meningitis, they don't recommend it. They just say to use amoxicillin or, or an alternative based on sensitivity testing uh, for listeria. Hmm. So that's brain or C- well, CSF penetrance. Placenta or breast milk? So that's about 30%. So one of those questions that you often get asked is, 
you know, here's this patient who's got a complex infection oh, and they're breastfeeding. And that can be quite tricky. So worth being aware that it does cross into breast milk to a degree. The good news is that it's not absorbed orally, so the baby won't absorb it from breast milk, but it might still have an effect on their, their gut. I, th- I think it's important to know that it's crossing the placenta and, you know, that may be a concern. I mean, certainly that, you know, it's use in in pregnancy, it, you know, generally speaking, if you're using gentamicin, you're doing it because you have to. But you will get asked questions on that, and I suppose that it's worth knowing. I don't think that, you know, if you're thinking about in breast milk, like what are the chances you're going to be using it to treat like a mastitis? You know, probably not very, that's probably not very likely. Lung, though, is an interesting one because sometimes we do want to use it to treat pneumonias. And I know that there's certainly down down here, there's a bit of a prejudice against it. And it's based on this idea that gentamicin doesn't penetrate into lung tissue. And I, I heard that, you know, up in, in Nadosh North when I was training with you. And probably you've heard that too, haven't you, Cal? Mm-hmm. And here's, here's the issue uh, that I think. The lung is not just the air bit, and it's not just the blood vessel bit either. It's both of them together. And if you've got an infection in the blood vessel bit, you may well want to use an aminoglycoside because it you know, distributes to, uh, to the blood, no problem, because it's an IV drug. What about if you've got an infection in the alveolar side? What's going to happen there? Well, the penetrance is about a third. So say you've got a Cmax of, you know, nine, nine times MIC, you might only get three times over MIC in the alveolar fluid. And that, that 33%, uh, by the way, is from the, the link there, links out to a study of patients that were getting aminoglycosides for ventilator-acquired pneumonia. So six sick intensive care patients, and you were still getting about a third going in. So... You know, three times over MIC, you won't get as much kill as nine times over MIC. Fine. But you'll still be getting some drug effect. Is it enough that you can, you know, trust aminoglycosides for, you know, lung infection or gram-negative lung infection? You know, I don't know. I'm not sure that I would want to use it in isolation. There are some schools of thought that would think that for hospital-acquired pneumonia, you can use amoxicillin plus gentamicin as kind of broad-spectrum cover and still get good effect. Um, but, you know, others might say, you know, I would want to, uh, at that point for hospital pneumonia, just default to comoxiclav or Piptas, depending on how certain you are that you want to cover pseudomonas in that situation. Hmm. Yeah, tricky one. I guess the, the, the side thing to that is that often people get labelled of hospital-acquired pneumonia, they don't really have hospital-acquired pneumonia, mm. um, which I think is pretty robustly shown in, uh, shown in the data where you where you go back and review the radiological features and so on. So, you know, actually, do some of these patients have urinary tract infections or they, they have sepsis from another source, and GENT's going to be good there. Mm. Um, but that's a different question altogether. Yeah. So a, f- a few tissues where you get about 50% uh, penetrance, and that's the uh, vertebral disc and uh, bone, the joint, and pleural, pericardial, and peritoneal fluid will all get about 50% uh, penetrance, which is kind of good to know. And then there's the urinary tract. And as we said, aminoglycosides are excreted unchanged in the urine, and you will get, generally speaking, about 100 times whatever your plasma concentration is. So 
see your peak after giving, say, say you're giving a endocarditis dose of, of aminoglycosides, you know, say you're giving three milligrams per kilogram, you would expect a peak after a dose like that to be something in the order of three to five milligrams per, per liter. So you would get about three to five in the plasma, but you would get 300 to 500 in the urinary tract. So, you know, just imagine that you had an organism in the urinary tract that was, had an MIC of 128. You know, normally you would consider that to be quite resistant. Well, if you're getting a urinary concentration of 300 to 500, you know, milligrams per liter, you're getting way, way over the MIC with a fairly innocuous dose of, of jetamycin there. Um, so this explains why aminoglycosides are so good for urinary tract infections because they're concentrated to such a high level that they just kill everything in their path. And it's just worth thinking, we don't have a uh, reference for this one, but um, from a reading that aminoglycosides, although there's some concern about charge and the, the effects of the polarity of aminoglycosides on this, that they appear to penetrate well into prostate. Um, tissue. But it's not all roses and sunshine. There are some toxicity issues with aminoglycosides, aren't there, Callum? I guess I should say, with one's daily dosing, and as long as you're doing it rightly, and for short periods of time, toxicity is fairly minimal. I'd say rare. If, you, if you're doing, if you're, as we've, we said on the Febra episode, if you're in a site where there is training of staff who are involved in the prescribing administration and monitoring of gentamicin, you have processes to pick up patients where there's been incorrect dosing or there's been, you know, changes in renal function and you're following these protocols well, and then this is a very safe drug. Yeah, yeah, true. And, you know, what are the, what are the two big main side effects that people worry about, Cal? Nephrotoxicity and auto or vestibular toxicity. Mm. That's the two big ones. Um, nephrotoxicity, so you can look at who's at increased risk for that. It's older patients, it's people with pre-existing chronic kidney disease, cirrhotic patients, patients who are on other nephrotoxics, so for example, diuretics, and also duration of therapy. So the prolonged use of aminoglycosides is the big risk factor. And yeah. particularly, once you're getting beyond seven days of use, that's when you're really starting to ramp up your, your risk. So I guess that I guess that's commonly these days in endocarditis patients where you're using gentamicin yeah 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 you don't often use it more than five days seven is pretty unusual mm. the the nephrotoxicity is generally reversible but i guess the issue is that you know if you've got a patient with underlying chronic kidney disease and you push them over the edge into uh needing dialysis or something um what about autotoxicity yeah so it's slightly different and I've learned this from you. So the mechanism of the toxicity here is that it's getting into the mitochondria of the hair cells. So the hair cells are the, the small parts within the, the cochlea and the um, vestibular apparatus. So yeah, in the inner ear, the uh, hair cells, there's mitochondrial toxicity and they die and they're not replaced. Yeah, well, they're, they're not replaceable. But the, the, the issue is that gentamicin can get in quickly, but for some reason it can't get out quickly. So that can lead to accumulation. It's often irreversible. So although I think 
we talk about these being the two big risks and everybody knows about nephrotoxicity but i think the autotoxicity is people are aware of it but they often don't think about it in the day-to-day practicalities of prescribing it and i often well always make the point when i'm advising this for more than three days is check with the patient every day you know because as a patient you've got no idea that you're um you know this ringing in your ears this tinnitus that you've developed you know how, how are you meant to know that this is due for your antibiotics i don't think we're very good at, at saying to patients you know we want to hear about new symptoms because mm. you might not be able to link that to what's going on but it could be something that we're doing to you that is causing that problem yeah and the there was a recent sort of bmj article sort of stating that the, probably vestibular toxicity was more uh, common with aminoglycosides. And I mean, I don't know about you, Cam, but I've never actually, uh, you know, attested for um, vestibular toxicity in a, a patient on aminoglycosides. Mm. But maybe we should do. I mean, that was certainly the argument that this article was uh, was making. What, what, what were they suggesting as a test that you could feasibly do? They had a bunch of brilliant diagrams on the test to uh, and how to assess the eighth cranial nerve and the vestibular apparatus in general, which I have not memorized. And the suggestion was to do that every day when yes. someone's on a meal, even, even just short doses or was it over a certain time? Calm. it was written by two people. One was an audiologist and one was a neurologist who didn't really want anybody to use aminoglycosides. <laughs> and I suspect came from a hospital where aminoglycosides were infrequently used. So there were some sort of inaccuracies in the article. I didn't really think all that much of it, but the diagrams that they had for testing vestibular toxicity were excellent. The one thing I will say that the, there is an association between onset of autotoxicity to the deafness, and I think also the vestibular toxicity with fruzamide, uh, so loop diuretics in particular, mm. uh, are particularly bad. And so if somebody was on a loop diuretic, I would try and see if we could cease it whilst they were on gentamicin. And if they were old and on a loop diuretic and no, you couldn't stop it because, you know, they had heart failure and uh, you didn't want them to decompensate, I might seriously consider using an alternative uh, for mm. gram negative cover. Yeah, if you're if you're old and frail and then you, your, your vestibular system stops working, then you're going to fall over and that could be catastrophic. So I guess that, you know, doesn't seem like as big a risk as nephrotoxicity because we measure renal function so fastidiously in the hospital. But, you know, for the patient, this could be, that could be huge. So definitely yeah. worth thinking and asking about. Well, I mean, it's independent of dose as well. So it doesn't matter how much of it you're giving and it can happen at any time as well. So it's like traditionally thought of as duration dependent, but some people get it after like one dose. Uh, so it can be really variable and there's, you know, different uh, susceptibilities within the population to the vestibular toxicity. We don't really know exactly how frequently it happens. No, but I do know you can minimize it by, you know, not using it when you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last thing we'll point out is that there's a proposed association between aminoglycosides and an exacerbation of symptoms in myasthenia gravis amongst um, a bunch of other uh, antibiotics as well. I'll say no more about that. Can I say a bit about dosing, Callum? Mm. So I think I've previously said that the uh, we've moved over to, to one daily dosing for most, most of the time for aminoglycosides, gentamicin and, and tobramycin and amicacin, definitely. And that's 
because a hospital called Hartford in the late 90s moved from a three times a day uh, dosing regimen to a one time a day dosing regimen, thinking that it would be um, better for the patient. They would have a big peak where they would get all of their kill. They would have a good post-antibiotic effect and they would have a gentamicin-free period. And in that gentamicin-free period, the kidneys could recover from, from injury as opposed to constantly being exposed to a low level of, of gentamicin all the time. And they kind of proved that there was equal outcomes compared to the old regimen, but a better side effect profile. And then that sort of rolled over the following 10 years out to the rest of the world to the point where basically everybody uses dosing of uh, aminoglycides once daily. The only exception to that really is in endocarditis, where uh, luckily enough, all of the endocarditis guidelines make wildly different recommendations on how much to use. So um, <laughs> AHA, the, the BSAT guidance for endocarditis, which are now you know 10 years old. British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. Recommend, thank you, Callum, uh, one mg per keg twice a day, uh, whereas AHA... American Heart Association. Thank you, Callum. Uh, recommend three milligrams per kilogram daily, but in three doses, so one mg per keg three times a day. And ESC? European Society for Cardiology. Thank you, Callum. Uh, recommend three milligrams per kilogram, but once a day. Uh, and so in NADOS North, we were using the BSAC guidance because it was British and we are for Britain. And in NADOS South, <laughs> we're using the European guidance because we're in Europe. Well, we were at the time. And I got to say that three mix per keg once a day makes it so much easier to, to dose. It makes and, more sense uh, as well. Well, it just, it makes more sense based on the PK. I, you know, if you're, you know, worried about synergy, you'll still be getting the synergy if you give it once a day compared to uh, twice a day and you're giving more of the drug. And so you're, you, you know, you're more likely to get more, more kill. Yeah. Most people don't tolerate it because you start to get side effects. So then you can't use it for as long. So if we already know that once a day dosing is associated with, with less toxicity, then surely even if like, cause I, obviously I'm not a, an expert in this or a cardiologist or, you know, I didn't write these guidelines and I don't have the same overview of the evidence. So there must be a reason for multiple day dosing still to have been recommended. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a time related thing. Oh, you think it's time related? Okay. Well, even if it is. Well, I mean, cause the BSAC guidance doesn't recommend amoxicillin keftraxone for Entrococcal endocarditis because there wasn't enough evidence at the time of publication. Whereas in 2015, AHA and ESE are both recommending it as an alternative because there was. But surely, if it, if there's synergistic effect, then the the most important thing is to give it for as long as possible. So if you give it once a day and there's lower toxicity, then you can give it for longer. That's probably better than giving it multiple times a day. I mean, maybe you're now getting into the mercury world of whether or not synergy exists. Well, yeah, um, that's why. Or, I think or has if, hard clinical outcomes. Yes. So I think we'll have to leave that for another day. Yeah. The, the other thing I should point out is that if you have an antibiotic-free period, like if you're giving it once a day, there you, you may well have high resistance mutants in your population because the you know the bugs it's, it's a heterogeneous population some will be more resistant some will not be and those high resistance mutants may be outcompeted 
in the antibiotic-free period of the day. And then the low MIC strains, which I competed the high MIC strains, can get killed with the next dosing interval. Ah. Yeah. In terms of how much to dose at a time, there's sort of a debate between five and seven milligrams per kilogram. The original Hartford nomogram was seven megs per keg because that was the total daily dosing that they were using at the time. Some people, and the practice varies across Scotland as to what uh, dosing they use. Some people say that five megs per keg is less kind of nephrotoxic and allows you to use it for a longer period of time. As far as I know, there's no comparison which is sort of improving hard outcomes with with seven as opposed to five. The seven mix per keg is sort of generates a Cmax of 20, which is 10 times the mean MIC of Pseudomonas with like an old testing regimen from CLSI. So that's got nothing to do really with the Pseudomonas MICs uh, that we're using these days. And so I don't really know what to make of that. I have seen other sort of data showing that if you are trying to aim for 10 times, 10 times MIC, you will hit that like 95% of the time with a seven mix per keg regimen, but only about 50, 30 to 50% of the time with a five mix per keg regimen. I read that ages ago and I've lost the reference and I've tried to find it since then. But I don't really know that that matters Clinically, I don't know how important it is really to hit that 10 times um, MIC all the time. You'll still be getting kill, you know, the second you go above the MIC. Does it matter that you've not hit that kind of maximal uh, level? I don't know. If you know, email us at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Yeah, if anybody's got some references that they want to to uh, give us on this, that would be uh, great. Or you could tweet us at idiots underscore pod. So I guess just to touch slightly on Synergy, there was a Cochrane review in 2014 on, on sepsis in general. And basically their outcome of the review of the, the evidence that they did was that the addition of aminoglycosides to beta-lactams for sepsis should be discouraged. All-cause mortality rates are unchanged and there's an increased risk of toxicity. So, you know, I, I guess it depends why you're adding it in. If you're adding in just for synergy, it's probably not worth doing it. At least it may have some effect, but there's not really good evidence for it to be the case. And the more drugs you give, the more chance of a problem. Mm. If you're using it to change your spectrum of cover, then that make, does make sense. When you, when you go and look at that Cochrane review, You'll, you'll see that most of the beta-lactams that were being used were broad-spectrum in nature. And so I think it's been, you know, 2014 was eight years ago, and that was an update of a previous review, if I remember rightly. I think it's fairly well established that if you have a broad-spectrum beta-lactam that's going to be covering gram-negatives and you add in gentamicin, you don't get any additional benefit. But there's lots of bits of infectious disease where we initially thought that combination therapy was going to be beneficial, you know, like for, you know, MRSA and staph aureus in general, for example. And then we found out that that wasn't the case. Mm. The thing, let, let, let's put our cards on the table and, and sort of, um, we've mentioned this before, but in Scotland, if you come in with sepsis and we don't know where it's coming from, and we just sort of want to cover everything, we will give you amoxicillin and gentamicin plus or minus metronidazole if we want to cover intra-abdominal stuff. 
So the amox is for strep and kind of enterococci. The gent is for gram negatives and it will cover staph okay. It's not as good as fluplox, but it's reasonably trustworthy. And the metronidazole is for anaerobes. So those three drugs in combination, that's very broad spectrum um, cover. We're doing that because we don't want to give you keftriaxone or comoxiclav because we're worried about C. diff. And for more details on why we're worried about C. diff, uh, listen to the febrile episode where we were guests, again, inexplicably. And then we're also worried about resistance developing. And this is becoming an issue in, um, you know, all over the world. And there's a drive, you know, the WHO is driving the use of more narrow spectrum antibiotics and using narrow spectrum antibiotics in combination to produce broad spectrum cover. And that's kind of what we've been doing in Scotland for a while now. Um, and this Cochrane review would seem to kind of fly in the face of that and say that that's, that's not a good thing. But that's not what we're doing in Scotland. We're not giving a broad spectrum beta-lactam and then adding in an aminoglycoside and hoping that that increases our, you know, uh, improves our outcomes. We're providing broad spectrum cover using both of those drugs in combination. So we're not adding one on top of the other for gram-negative cover, say. We're using one for gram-positive and one for gram-negative and staph. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's sometimes a rationale to say give an aminoglycoside of a broad spectrum penicillin if you're worried about risk of like resistant organisms. So say you're you're giving tazacin empirically for neutropenic sepsis, um, and you're worried that they might have an ESBL organism mm. and the patient's very unwell. You give gent in that situation, and that's not really because you're trying to get synergy, but more that well, just in case it is an ESBL, then you've you've got the sort of backup second second cover. Should we move on? Yeah, sure. I think that's all I had to say, actually, Callum. We shall save the tragedy of plasmobiton for another day. And what a day it shall be. Um, so we've gone through aminoglycosides in general. We've talked about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. We've talked about how they are used these days and how they were used historically. And a little primer on how uh, you might want to use them if you were going to make more use of them in your empirical antimicrobial uh, regimens. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them to us at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Got a five-star review in your pocket? Why don't you go ahead and pop it on your podcast player of choice? Such as? Such as? Who's this person? J.M. McRae. I wonder who that is. I love this podcast. It's the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, you're better, Callum. It's particularly like every time you mention aminoglycosides because they make me happy inside. Do more aminoglycoside content, please. Uh, Such as CS Trainee Scotland, who said, each episode of this podcast focuses on important aspects of infectious diseases in a systematic way. Thank you, Callum and Jane, for this great production. I'm a newbie in the field of clinical micro, and it's been helpful to have these episodes to complement my training. Thank you very much. Oh, we really appreciate feedback. So keep sending it in, good and bad. Do I need to say something else? Um, until next time. Until next time. I've been Callum. I'm Jane. Bye. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.